Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far... I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And the Biden economy continues to exceed expectations with blockbuster job numbers. We have a fantastic show for you today. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre will explain to us what it means to be press secretary. Then we'll have CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig about his new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. But first, we have the host of Crash Course, Bloomberg Opinion Editor, Tim O'Brien. Welcome to Fast Politics, Tim O'Brien. Molly, this is like sort of my dose of uh, reality and fun anytime you open the door to me. So thanks for having me on. That's a bad sign. (laughs) If I'm (laughs) your fun then you are in trouble. No, that's not true. I've heard that actually a lot and I appreciate it every time I hear it. So there was a spy balloon over Montana. Ryan Zinke, you may remember him as uh, having one of the few people who had to resign from the Trump administration for corruption. That guy, (laughs) or as I like to think of him, the guy who looks just like the Grinch, is uh, in Congress now. Yes. The path now to power is to suck up to Donald Trump, engage in a corrupt activity, depart for a while, and then come back with more power in Congress. Yeah. Because that's how the GOP function. Exactly. So basically, of the Republicans who serve Montana, the one congressman, two senators, are all, and also Marjorie Taylor Greene, are like, shoot the Chinese spy balloon out of the sky. Let's go. Yeah. Balloonery buffoonery. (laughs) One that it got dubbed the spy balloon is just really rich. And I think 
you know, the fact that we've gotten to the run, duck, and cover phase of China paranoia. Right. You know, I'm pretty hawkish about China. I think we should be vigilant about China. Yeah. I think they're doing aggressive things in the South China Sea. I think they're a threat to stability in Asia. You know, I think that they haven't made good on their trade promises. But I think this balloon thing is the most absurd thing imaginable. Uh, for one, I don't think there's anything this, if this balloon was equipped with special cameras or whatever else they think is on it. My understanding is it could not capture anything on the ground. Right, it's too far up. Well, the Chinese satellites couldn't already capture. The Chinese are now saying it's a weather balloon, which we probably shouldn't trust that either. <laughs> but I sort of don't really care. And what's more interesting to me in this whole thing is it, it is like the scare tactic phase of our relationship with China is anything you can latch on to to sort of say, Look up in the sky, you're barbecuing, and there's a spy balloon right. will be used <laughs> right. to political effect, right? <laughs> Right, right. No question. And it does seem to me, you know, Republicans, it's funny because they were very against, I mean, it's not funny and it's also not what any kind of funny, but they were very, very against any kind of conflict with Russia, Vladimir Putin, he's our guy, but they are really into the idea of going to war with China. And then yet, you know, Nancy Pelosi goes to Taiwan right? and Republicans more than I think two dozen of whom in the prior two years to her visit had gone to Taiwan, jump all over her as as sort of um, inartfully rattling the saber against China when they all had been spending a lot of time rattling the shit saber against China. The trouble with dissecting anything Republicans do right now is anything that they would consider to be policy goals or policy statements constantly get either undermined or made entirely opaque by the fact that they'll do anything to engage in culture wars or to find a reason to criticize the Democrats, even if they're criticizing Democrats for behavior they've engaged in themselves. Right. Now, one could ask if this balloon fiasco is a way to distract against these incredible, humongous job numbers. Can we talk about these job numbers? So... You know, unemployment is low. It's been, it has been since 1969, the unemployment rate coming out of this existential threat of, a, of the pandemic lockdowns. There are, you know, there are more jobs in the economy now than there were prior to the pandemic. And I think two things about it. One is, you know, I don't think presidents exercise a lot of control over the economy. They set some parameters. And I think the way the federal government operates creates a, you know, a hospitable environment for the economy to thrive if things are done right. Yeah. During the whole time that inflation was soaring, Republicans went out of their way to try to tag Biden as, as blowing up the Trump economy and hurting average working class Americans. Certainly. And the reality is, I think inflation has peaked. I think it's moderating. The job market is strong. We'll see where this goes. The stock market right now, this is an interesting data point. At this point right now, yesterday, I'd have to look at the numbers again today. Yesterday, it had grown at exactly the same amount over exactly the same period of time during Biden's presidency as it had during Trump's. So for all the Trumpistas who said that bot is bad for the stock market, bad for the economy, bad for inflation, bad for working class Americans, there's, there's an avalanche of data that just tells them, get your head out of the sand. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. But I want to ask you about these jobs numbers for a minute because they're actually too hot, right? Can you explain this a little bit? Well, when can jobs numbers ever be too high? The only people that say that are bond traders and the Fed. The Fed is worried about a hot economy. They're worried about right. inflation. They're worried that a strong workforce will put pressure on demand and that will cause inflation to spike. So you have the Fed fighting against the economy in a weird way to try to cool inflation. Well, I think you have the Fed weighing. I I don't think that's the way to think about it. I think the Fed would always say they're guardians of the long term health of of the U.S. economy. Right. And I think that's the best of them all think that way and they're public servants in that regard. But what they kind of constantly weigh is rising inflation versus full employment. Right. And they see their mandate as trying to balance those two things. The problem with the inflation data that they're freaked out by is it spiked in, in an unusually fast way. And there's a possibility that it might dissipate in an unusually fast way. There was, you know, people always talk about how political pollsters just really never really know and they get it wrong. And the same is true of economists. There is so much we don't know. But inflation may have spiked because COVID blew up the supply chain. Inflation may have spiked because of massive and necessary government spending to to cushion the impact of the pandemic or excessive or intense demand from workers. They don't really know. So they're trying to say, how tough should we be to bring inflation down before it spirals out of control in a way that hurts the economy? But the problem is this is not a normal inflationary environment. So they're trying to say, how long do we have to be tough? Right. And and I don't think we should think of a strong job market as bad. We right, want right, the right. U.S. job market to be really, really strong. No, no question. But it is the te- the tension is quite interesting. Among the, you know, the pinheads. <laughs> interesting to me. <laughs> is that fair? Yeah, no, but I don't I don't mean that about you. I mean that about the Fed. Right. I mean, I think. A year or two from now, people will look back and say, did they get it right? And should they have been as spooked by inflation as they were right. or not? And if they're overly spooked, they could cause a, re- a recession if they hike rates too high. Right. No question. And that, I think, is a really good point. And that's something that we're all I think watching. So I want to ask you, now we are in this pre-2024 hellscape. Trump is in, Republicans. I mean, what is, I mean, just explain to me this fuckery and then I want to get to Stormy Daniels. (laughs) Okay. By the way, they're bringing back all the first season uh, characters. Right, exactly. And I think actually maybe to greater effect legally, but we'll get there. Yes. The best way to understand Republicans right now is that they're in a hostage video. Right. And Donald Trump is filming them. He's got this, I think, a still unwavering hold on about 25 to 30% of the Republican voting base. And that makes him a power broker in primaries. Right. He is not somebody who can pull a national coalition together. And you know, there's this debate of, will he repeat 2016? And because the GOP field is so fractured, he'll have enough to get over the top and then be able to win again because he'll sew it together in a few states as he did against Hillary Clinton. I think the American electorate has become wise enough, not maybe wise enough, <laughs> but, but, you know, wise to what he represents at the national level. And he's lost three national referendums you know, in the last three electoral cycles. And 
the Republicans don't know what to do about that because I think they know he's not viable nationally, but they know they can't cut him off because they'll they'll need his mojo during the primary season. I think that's clearly what's happening. So now we have this Stormy Daniels situation coming back. I want to talk to you about Alvin Bragg. Alvin Bragg had a case that was a case of inflating the value of the assets. Basically to defraud banks. Right, to defraud banks. And now he decided not to keep going with that. And there was a lot of controversy there and a lot of people asking what was he doing. Now Alvin Bragg is maybe back. I mean, do you think the emperor has no clothes? Do you think this is real? Tell me what you think. I think this is real. I, I, I don't think they'd be spinning their wheels there. You know, they're doubling down on trying to get Alan Weisselberg to flip. Right. I think against Trump, they've put enormous pressure on Jeff McConaughey. You know, people think of the Trump organization as like an organization. It's actually an oxymoron, right? right? It's, it's neither organized <laughs> right. nor very large. It was a small shop of a few people that did what Trump told them to do. So any of these people that he's investigating are people who after were working under the direction of Donald Trump. I think he felt in the first phase when Mark Pomerantz left, you know, a well-regarded prosecutor who was in the office and resigned because he felt Bragg wouldn't bring a prosecution of Trump. Right. They didn't have the evidence to prove that Trump had intent when the banks were allegedly defrauded. And there was a big split in that office on that case, that that, that route, they didn't, some felt they had the evidence, some felt they didn't. Right. And they parted ways. I think he's now looking at an accounting fraud case. And I think I think he believes he has the evidence to establish intent around Donald Trump, certainly among his minions, which is why they all look so disastrously like beaten into the ground whenever there's photos of them coming out of the courthouses or, you know, it's like Kelly's Heroes or something, mm -hmm. some old movie of like, you know guys in prison who are sprung to go into battle. So you think this is a real case and they can get him on this or they can do something? I don't know if they can get him. I don't think, I mean, the, the stakes in this are so high that I don't think any prosecutor in the country right now right. is going to go lightly about their work. And I think we've seen, uh, you know, Fonnie Willis go diligently about her work. I hope Merrick Garland is going diligently about his. He appears to be. You know, I think that Tish James, AG in New York is, and I think Bragg is. And I think he feels, I would look at this and I would say, he feels he's got a case now, but it's a different one than what was given to him when he first came into the DA's office. It is weird. You know, I've written a lot about this. You've written a lot about this. It does feel kind of strange that here's Trump. You know, he is, I mean, by far the most criminal president we've ever had. And he's had no official anything again. You know, he's free to run again. He's got no, you know, he's not, he has yet to be indicted. I mean, it is a bit strange that he's in this position a full two years later. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, part of it is the problem of white collar crime generally right. in the U.S. is our system is almost built to make you know, perpetrators of white collar crimes variously defined as subject to a much higher burden of proof than somebody who rips off a 7-Eleven. Right. And, and then secondarily, he's got the powers of the presidency. I wish prosecutors would sort of get rid of this, the majesty of the office kind of thinking and just treat him like you would treat any other target. Yeah. I think the Mueller investigation was undermined by Mueller's deference to the White House. Yeah. And that's protected Trump. You know, and and it's he sort of just stumbled into that. 
accidentally and and then discovered that it was yet another ring of fire that could keep justice from crawling up his to his doorstep. Yeah, I mean, definitely true. So I want to ask you about David Pecker, one of our we have. This is not the first time we've talked about him. He has really skated. That's another you know, that's another amazing thing is he is in the midst and in the middle of not just the Stormy Daniels, you know, matter and finding cushions for, you know, Trump's alleged lovers. He spent years weaponizing his media properties on Trump's behalf. But, you know, that's not a crime in this country, by the way, since you and I are both in the media. But he has certainly fallen reputationally, and his station in the world, I think, has changed. Not that it was ever on an elevated plane. <laughs> right, I was going to say. I mean, the guy who owns the examiner, yeah. When you're already in the tar pit, how far down can you go? We find ourselves like in this run up to this 2024 election. And I just want to know, like, it does seem like Trump could win, but it also seems like Trump could absolutely not win this primary. I think Trump could win the primary and not win the national election. And I think the Republicans deserve that dilemma because they've lacked the, the, the courage and integrity to do otherwise. You know, I think if the economy had been unwinding now continuously and inflation was on a wild rampage, I think it would have been hard for Biden to be the standard bearer for the Democrats. You know, he's obviously like a disastrous public speaker and often cringeworthy, but he is stuck by, I think, programmatically what he and his advisors and a meaningful block of Democrats and independent voters want to hear and see legislatively and on a policy track. And I think he'll probably be the standard bearer. I mean, that's a really good question, right? Because it's like, I mean, how do you argue the policy, you know, the economy is is coming back. There's a lot of good stuff happening. You know, Republicans, when they say like things are a disaster, they make up stuff that, you know, it's five billion dollars worth of CRT being taught in nursery schools. I mean, you know, like I just I wonder if, you know, if all of those other things are OK, maybe it doesn't matter that, you know, Biden is imperfect. I, I think that could very well be the case. And I think that voters actually made that trade off in 20, you know, in, in 2020. And, you know, voters rescued us <laughs> and they rescued us in the midterms and they're going to rescue us again. The media and law enforcement and other institutions played a role, I think, in keeping a finger in the dike around Trumpism. But it was ultimately voters who had to rescue us. I felt very pessimistic prior to the midterms. Yeah, me too. And I was really happy to see that hey, people are paying attention. And and so now I feel a little more optimistic about 24. From your mouth to God's ear, thank you very much, <laughs> Tim O'Brien. Thank you for having me on, Molly. I always like talking to you. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Korean Jean-Pierre is the White House press secretary. Welcome to Fast Politics, Korean. <laughs> Hello, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. Fast Politics. Wow. <laughs> we'll be fast. We'll be fast, right? We'll be fast. So you are press secretary. It's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty enormous job. Will you explain to our listeners who are very politically savvy but might not completely understand what is the job? So the job is being essentially the top chief spokesperson for the president of the United States. That's the simplest, simplest way to explain it, which is I have the honor and the privilege to uh, be at a podium for about an hour, almost every day, five days a week at the most to talk about the president's priorities, the president's agenda. How is he delivering for the American people? And then I take those questions from the members of the press on things that they want to ask about either that particular policy or the news of the day. And honestly, Molly, it is a privilege and an honor to be able to do that every single day 
for the most powerful leader in the world, the president of the United States. Sometimes yeah. I have to pinch myself because it is indeed something that I would have never have dreamed of. And I take that responsibility, Molly, so seriously. It is very heavy on my shoulders and heavy weight on my shoulder uh, because I want to make sure that I'm doing it in an effective way so the American people know what we're dealing with, know what we're talking about, and also making sure that I'm capturing the president's voice and capturing also what it is that he wants me to talk about as it relates to uh, the policies that we're trying to push forward. Something I think people may not know is that the press is in sort of the same area as the rest of the White House staff. Can you explain that a little bit? Because that's sort of interesting. Yeah. So I always say that we are the one uh, department office on the campus, on the White House campus, where our constituents are with us. Our <laughs> constituents are right here on campus. And what I mean about that is I just mentioned the White House briefing room. People know the White House briefing room. It is a well-known room or part of the White House uh, that many people who come on tours, that is one of the places it's like the Oval Office, the White House briefing room uh, <laughs> that they want to see for themselves. And because of that, there are some White House correspondents or White House reporters or White House producers that actually have offices and cubicles right kind of under like to the back under on the floor of the precinct briefing room but also um in the basement right and it is uh certain publications have booths uh it's been a lot of it is historical how long they've been there and so they actually work there they have their work hours in their booths in their offices right there in the in the white house and then some folks i i know you said your, your folks are pretty politically savvy obviously if they're listening to you uh, and want to hear news about what's happening in D.C. And, uh, and across the country. There is the White House North Lawn, which is right to the right of the White House, in front of the White House. And um, there, the White House Lawn has all of the cameras and the TVs, and you'll see a lot of the White House correspondents, a lot of the White House reporters standing, doing their reporting, and you see the White House in the back behind them as the backdrop. And so those are the those reporters as well. A lot of them spend most of their day right here at the White House doing their job, doing their work, coming to the briefing room and reporting. Do you feel that your parents are okay that you're not a doctor now? <laughs> like, do, you, do, do you feel that they've given you the okay? They have given me the okay. I have incredibly proud parents. My mom, I know, watches the briefing whenever it is on and is always proud and is always cheering me on, will let me know uh, that she watched the briefing, brags about me, hears from her friends about me, and is just incredibly proud. I uh, brought my mom to the state dinner, which oh, is wow. the first state dinner that the president had uh, in his presidency. Obviously, COVID had slowed us down a bit for the first year and a half or so. That was France, right? Right. Yes, President Macron and Bridget, his wife, they came in December, December 1st, and my mom was my plus one. And she was so thrilled and so happy. And she kept on, she cried a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And she, and the next day she told me, you just made me so happy. You just don't understand how happy you made me. And she uh, met the president for the first time, which I hadn't realized that she hadn't met him yet. And she went up to him and said, I love you so much. And he's so, he's just so good. The president is just, President Biden's just so good at this. And he opened his 
arms and she put her head in his chest mm-hmm. and he hugged her really, really tight and said, so lovely to meet you. And of course, said all the nice things about me, which he he's very good at as well. <laughs> and it's a moment that is one of the most beautiful moments that I have experienced um, with my mom. We have a photo of it that I'm going to get printed and framed so she could have in her home. So I want to ask you, we had this administration, the last administration, the one before this, otherwise known as the former guy, and they were really worked hard to demonize the mainstream media to say that the media was the enemy of the people. And some of it worked. How do you interface with the media in a world where the media, you know, one party really does hate the media? And it's unfortunate. What we saw, let me just call that out very yeah. clearly. What we saw from the ad- last administration and with what they tried to do to the media, which is journalism is we are a democracy. Journalism is important and it's something that we should fight for and the president fights for here in this country and across and speaks to it globally, right, across the world. When we see a journalist that's being attacked or not allowed to report freely, not allowed to do their journalistic duties, we have to call that out because having a democracy is important. So that's one piece. I think we need to call that out. We have, uh, we have course corrected, if you will, and have hopefully brought back a healthier relationship. And we understand what it means for them to to be in the room and to take those questions. Look, I think, Molly, regardless of who is in this role or which party is in power outside of the last administration, right, which is was what we saw, there is a natural tension, right, between the press and any administration and the person in my job is the focal point of that. Right. And so and and so what I want to be also clear is that tension. I think that tension is actually very good. It is a healthy part of our democracy. The press can and should question the government. That is their job. That's what they should do. They should seek the truth and hold the powerful accountable. Right. That is what they should do. And I know some in the press, you know, Uh, don't like my answers every day, but that is part of the give and take of the job. And that is not unique to me at all. I think that has been true for every press secretary. Specifically, I think as well, the modern day ones, since our briefings are televised, the briefing being televised kind of also changes that dynamic as well. Yeah. Oh, no question. I also think that, I mean, the job here is for the media to be contentious in some ways. Well, I think, like I said, a healthy back and forth, and there's always going to be tension, that makes sense. And they should question the government. They should question uh, what it is that we're trying to do on on behalf of the American people. And you know what? I appreciate that. That's my job. That is my job. I don't take anything personally because, like I said, Every press secretary has had this experience. And so that's kind of how I uh, how I leave it. I just do my job, do it the best of my abilities, making sure that two things that I really focus on, focus on is communicating the president's agenda to the American people. The American people truly, truly matter. Right. Because that's who we're working on behalf of uh, and uh, making sure that we do have that uh, that democracy. Right. That back and forth, that journalism uh, that is so important and how they report back and being transparent and talking about the work and what we're trying to do here. It is interesting, though, 
that, like, for example, with the economy, this has actually been quite a much more positive economic cycle than many people thought. You know, inflation looks like it's it's, you know, moving in the right direction. There's a lot of good news in there. And there's been some hesitation on the part of the mainstream media, I feel like, to celebrate that good news. Let me just echo a little bit of what you just said. The president's economic policy is working. Yeah. The president's economic policy is working. And the data shows that. You talked about inflation. We are seeing inflation cool for the last six months. We are seeing unemployment rate at a rate that we haven't seen in more than 50 years. We are seeing historical legislative successes that we haven't seen since LBJ. When you think about infrastructure, really pushing, we pushed a bipartisan infrastructure legislation that is now law that is going to change communities across the country. Something that was a joke. Infrastructure week was a joke in the last administration. Right. Remember, many presidents have tried to do this and were not able to do this. And we were able to do it. And let's not forget the American Rescue Plan, which was the first piece of legislation that really helped us get the economy back on its feet. Many people said we couldn't do it. We got it done with only Democrats. The bipartisan infrastructure legislation, many people said, yeah, oh, you, there's no way you're going to be able to get that done in a bipartisan way. No one you're going to be able to do that. Do that. The president got it done. The Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to lower premiums, lower health care costs. It's going to really, truly help uh, Americans with health care, with fighting climate change, right, with um, making sure that we're lowering costs even on energy and creating jobs. I, mm-hmm. I didn't even say that. Creating jobs. <clears throat> Guess what? People said there's no way you're going to do it. And the president got it done. The veterans piece of legislation that deals with an issue that veterans have had to deal with for a long time. That got done in a bipartisan way. The Chips and Science Act, that got done. And let's not forget one of the last pieces this president signed in the last session was the Marriage Equality Act. Right. Which was done in a bipartisan way. And guess what? People said that wouldn't be get done. The the Gun Violence Prevention Act. Yeah, I never thought that would get done. Yeah, the Gun Violence Prevention Act. People didn't think that was going to be to do it. The most significant piece of legislation to happen in 30 years on gun violence. We still have a lot of work to do, but that got done. But to your point, it is we constantly have to push. We constantly have to lay out how it is that this president has transformationally changed how we deal with the economy. Instead of doing trickle down, which we don't believe in, he doesn't believe in, we're Building economy from the bottom up, middle out, which is not leaving anyone behind. But you're right. It is very difficult. It is very difficult to get that out there. And and so it is our job, right, to to talk directly to the American people, to talk to your viewers, and uh, as well, use other mediums to have those conversations so we can really broaden and grow our platform, our audience. So this is why it's so important for me to talk to you, Molly, as well as, you know, talk to the folks in the briefing room, but also to have conversations with folks like yourself. As I mean, I interviewed the vice president and it's impossible to quantify what it means to be first. But you, too, are first in a number of different ways as press secretary. Do you sort of take that in and say, like, people might give me a harder time? And I just I mean, people give me a very hard time, too. I'm not the first of anything, but I just try not to personalize it. I mean, is that what you do or do you have some other? I stay focused on my job. I think historians and history will certainly write about that and have their opinion. My job is to focus on the work at hand. There's a lot of noise, Molly, as you know, there's a lot of noise every day, a lot of noise. My job, I believe, is to tune it out. 
I stay focused on what I can control, which is how I communicate from the podium about what the administration is doing every day to help the American public. And serving in these roles are not about me. It really isn't. It is not about me. It's not about the president even. It's about the public who we are. We are here to serve. That's what it's about. And I stay really focused on that and tune out the rest. I'll add a few personal anecdotes because I think it's really important. You know, we're in a bubble here in D.C. And sometimes I don't really pay attention. You were talking about being a first and the communities that I represent. And sometimes I forget that. Yeah. And I mean, I inherently know it, right? Clearly, I know it. But sometimes I forget how much me being at that podium does touch people. I often encounter folks outside of this bubble and not even too much outside of the bubble, right? Right. Even the suburbs of the DMV. (laughs) I go out there and I have people who cry, who tell me how important it is to see me and it and it is people of people from from various backgrounds right yeah. it could be someone young in the black community or someone in a different community or it, it doesn't matter or the lgbtq community it is surprising to me how seeing me at the podium has touched so many people in a way that's inspiring in a way that changes their lives so if i'm able to do that at the same time molly that is great and i and i i honor that. And I, like I said, I started off this interview saying it is a privilege and an honor uh, to be doing this job. And if I can, on top of it, if I can inspire people, that's great. That is great. And that is, I think, important if you think about how the president thinks about things, right? If you think about how President Biden and Dr. Biden think about the importance of diversity, they think about how representation matters. They think they thought about what it meant to have someone like me at the podium. And it speaks to how diverse this administration is and the most diverse in in modern, you know, presidents. I think that says actually more about them, more about the president than me. Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. You have questions that you can't answer for any number of reasons. How do you deal with that? I deal with it in the most honest way that I can, right? And it depends on the question, right? Most recently, it's because of a legal matter, right? If there's a legal matter, we have been very clear here. We have been very clear that we just don't comment on that. It doesn't matter what the topic is or who who it's about. We have said, the president has said during the campaign, from the campaign, he has said the Department of Justice needs to be given back its independence. It is important to not politically interfere or get involved under any with any investigation. And this is the thing. You have heard us say this from the beginning of this administration. There is nothing absolutely new. And I said this at the beginning, there are going to be times where I understand. I totally get it. The press is not going to like my answer or think that I'm not giving them an answer. But here's the thing, Molly, I'm doing my job. Regardless, right? The answer I'm giving, I'm doing my job. Yeah, so true. Thank you so much. This was so interesting. I know. Thanks, Molly. I really appreciate the time. I really do. I know you, our dear listeners, are very busy and you don't have time to sort through the hundreds of pieces of punditry each week. This is why every week I put together a newsletter of my five favorite articles on politics. If you enjoy the podcast, you will love having this in your inbox every Friday. So sign up at fastpoliticspod.com and click the tab to join our mailing list. That's fastpoliticspod.com. 
Ellie Honig is a CNN legal analyst and author of the book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Welcome to Fast Politics, Ellie Honig. Molly Jongfast, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for having me. We're delighted. So let's talk about the book first. Absolutely. How did you decide to write this book? Tell us about it. Tell us your origin story, go. This book arose organically. I wrote my first book, which was called Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Corrupted the Justice Department, and it went great. (laughs) Just proven to be more and more true every day. You saw that times. I know. I I mean, I want to do an addendum. We did a paperback and I I wrote a whole new chapter. I feel like I could almost write volume two just even up to now. It's like this guy is such such a liar and so corrupt that it just keep years later it's still coming out on this guy. Talk about that time story for one second and then we'll get back to your book. But there was a story yesterday in the New York Times, Charlie Savage, that basically said Bill Barr tried to influence these Durham investigation. John Durham. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a chapter in the first book where I heavily criticized Barr over the Durham investigation. Yeah, basically, the it, it turns out the Durham investigation is exactly what it looked like and exactly what we all thought, which is it's this politically driven inquest to try to undermine anything Robert Mueller did and to right. try to lend some fuel to the fire of no collusion or that actually the FBI was corrupt here. Durham's investigation has been a complete spectacular failure. And it turns out, of course, Barr was complicit in it and tried to essentially soft pedal or lie to us about it. And he also tried to sort of push Durham to find something and to trash Mueller. Yes. I mean, Bill Barr could not hide his bias on this particular issue. He was pretty good at hiding his stripes on some things, but it always burned him. He always felt like the whole investigation of Donald Trump was a fraud, was a hoax, despite all the evidence right. that at least an investigation was necessary. And he, he pressured Durham. He tried to find results that just weren't there. And it's just more fuel to the fire that sort of spurred my first book. So you were right about Bill Barr, I think is the important. I am confident in saying I was absolutely <laughs> right about Bill Barr. And by the way, this guy's this guy, one of the, a small note, but you know, he always put on this whole act of like, oh, I'm too old for this crap. I don't need this business. Right. I don't care what people say about me. It turns I'm out retired. he's very, very vain. He's very, <laughs> yes. very public image conscious. I mean, He goes on every TV show. He's on air more than me almost. Right. He was on Bill Maher last week. Did Bill Maher. Yeah. And and the funniest thing is this is in my paperback. After he got out in response to a freedom of information request, DOJ released some of his texts. This guy is monitoring Twitter going, oh, did Don Jr. retweet me? It's embarrassing. That's amazing. At least someone respects Don Jr. Yeah, right. At least someone's hoping for approval from the guy. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I do the first book and HarperCollins, my publisher, is thrilled with it and did well. And a couple of weeks after it came out, they said, what do you want to do next? And I said, uh, I don't really have any ideas, guys. That was kind of my one thing that I had in mind. And they said, well, let me ask you this. My editor said, well, let me ask you this. What's the question that people just ask you the most through CNN or through through the other work you do? He said, take a couple of days, think about it, get back to me. And I said, oh, I don't need to take a couple of days. I'll tell you right now. The question is, how the hell does he get away with it? He can vary a bit, but it's the most often used to refer to Donald Trump. And they said, there it is, do that. And so what I do in the book is I blend a lot of different things. First of all, there's original reporting in there. There's scoops in there about things that happen behind closed doors at my old office, the Southern District of New York and DOJ. I take a lot of the public reporting and did a lot of research on not just Trump, but Harvey Weinstein, 
Jeffrey Epstein, Bill Cosby. Right. There are a lot of these guys got away with that. Exactly. Various CEOs, people who aren't as household names either. And then third, I blend in a lot of my own stories from when I was a prosecutor. I was a mob prosecutor, Molly. I did cases against really over 100, if you count it all up, actual New York City, Gambino and Genovese family members. And what struck me is People often say, oh, Trump's like a mob boss. It's really true. I can say that because I prosecuted mob bosses and I draw those parallels by telling a lot of my mob stories in the book as well. I want to ask you a question now about this news that we saw this week about the guy in the New York City FBI office. Explain this story to us because he was found to be like a Russian asset, right? Yeah, I mean, essentially, he's that that's the accusation here that he was essentially sort of in, in bed with or working with this guy, Oleg Deripaska, who is a Russian oligarch. And it's interesting to see everybody sort of the spin go into effect because people who believe that Mueller was doing the right thing are saying this is more proof. This, this sort of undermines some of the failures of the Mueller investigation. And others are saying it's proof that there was a fix in place against Donald Trump. So I think this is a perfect Rorschach test. How would that be possible that somehow this was a fix against Donald Trump? Right. It's hard to articulate, but they're making the argument. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nobody admits defeat on anything nowadays. Everyone can take any story and just go, see, see. And then you do see people saying, oh, this is this proves that Mueller was corrupt or that people on Mueller's team were corrupt or they were out to get Trump somehow. I just want to push back on this because what? (laughs) Again, I am not an expert in any area of this, but my question for you is there was a guy who worked in the FBI office who was largely in charge of Russia, mm-hmm. who turned out to be on Deripaska, Russian oligarchs payroll. Yep. That guy was there when the FBI office put out the statement that said Trump had no ties to Russia. Exactly. I think it. Yeah. And that they were investigating Hillary. Right. I think the best they can do in that situation, I think the best people who are defending Trump can do. It depends on how you cast Oleg Deripaska, because I think what they try to do is spin him as somehow being anti-Trump or an enemy of Joe Biden or something like that, or pro-Joe Biden, I should say, actually. So it doesn't make sense to me either. Right. And also, I mean, if you're going to trace the 2016 election and Hillary's defeat, and look, Hillary certainly was not a perfect candidate and a lot of things went wrong, but certainly it did not help having the FBI with their finger on the scale toward Trump. Oh, I mean, 100 percent. Look, James Comey will forever have this follow him. And I think Jim Comey, I think I know he violated FBI and DOJ protocol by coming out when he did. You know, know, I'll leave it to the electoral experts whether that swung the election, but it was a damn close election. And and that announcement was damn influential, damn close to the election. So, you know, people can draw their own conclusions. And by the way, you know, I, I do talk about this sort of in the book, not this specific incident, but how DOJ sort of has this constant struggle to keep itself independent, keep itself neutral. But a lot of times when it comes to powerful people, they they panic or for reasons good or bad, end up doing the wrong thing. 
I mean, there seems like there's more to the story, right? I think so. I think we're going to learn more. I'm fascinated to watch this case as it develops. I was pretty shocked by that. Now, with Rudy Giuliani, I mean, Rudy has said before, and again, you have to take what he says with a grain of salt, though, but he has said before that he had a relationship with this FBI office. Right. I mean, Rudy, yeah, you have to, I think you have to take everything with, with a pillar of salt with Rudy. I think there are more shoes to drop on this one. I'm keeping my powder dry on this because there, there's a lot here, a lot of moving parts. And yeah, I certainly don't trust Rudy. I, I'm not trusting the spin here either. The Trump spin. Yeah, I, I look, my initial reaction is that this is not helpful for, for people who believe that this was a big hoax. I think if, if anything, I think it casts some questions on why did the investigation come up short? Why did Trump essentially, why was he able to wriggle out of it? And why did the team let him wriggle out of it? Absolutely no question. So tell me what else you're watching now. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, in terms of what's uh, what's in the news? People getting away with it. What's in the FBI crime world? I mean, what are you seeing? I mean, look, the biggest one is Donald Trump. I mean, I mean, not to, you know, not to go back to this, but we are nearing a point of, of no return, I think, when it comes to the various Trump investigations. And I do talk about this in the book. And look, there's there's two big lanes that we need to focus on here. First of all, there's Fulton County in, in Georgia, the DA. It is, and I write, when I wrote the book, you know, when it, when we locked the book, it was four or five months ago. And I said, guys, there could be an indictment of Trump by the time this book comes out. And so the way I wrote the book, and I stand by every word of it, I say, Trump may well get indicted by the time you're reading this book. And if so, I think the first one to get there will be the Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis. And I think that's absolutely true. I actually think it's close to all but inevitable that she will indict him. Now, if you're rooting for a Trump indictment, that's great. You may get what you want. But I do talk in the book about how we have to be very careful here because an indictment is one thing, but a conviction is something very different, especially when you're talking about an indictment coming from a county level elected DA. I think there's going to be a serious challenge here, a serious right. legal challenge right. to whether a county DA has the jurisdiction and authority to charge a former president. And the other thing that I'm quite critical of both Fonnie Willis and Merrick Garland for is taking this long. We are two plus years out from January 6th. Not a single soul with any proximity to any political power has been charged with anything. But George at all. Barry Loudermilk. I mean, there are so many congressmen who spoke at that rally. How about John Eastman? How about Jeffrey Clark? How about Rudy? Yeah. And, and here's the thing. People say, well, you know, have patience and these things take time. Two years is too long. Two years is too long. Look, DOJ has unlimited resources. They could have put any amount of man manpower personnel on this they wanted. There's no reason they could, have, could not have gotten these cases taken down in late 2021. Yet here we are now early 2023. Even if somebody indicts Donald Trump tomorrow, right. early February, let's say 2023, when do you think that case goes to trial? There's going to be appeals. There's going to be federal. You know, they're going to try to take things federal. These cases, either case, will not get to a jury before 2024. And what's the world going to look like at that point? January 6th is going to be three years old. Donald Trump is going to be in the middle of the next campaign. And you could say, well, Trump's not very popular in Fulton County. Fine. But you still have a very, very high. I actually did this this math in in my book. There's a 98 percent chance, given the way people voted, that you will have one Trump juror out of 12 in Fulton County. 86 percent chance you'll have two and on down the line. You need a unanimous jury. And I think it's already hard enough. Put aside the, the, the strength of the proof. It's already hard enough to get 12 jurors unanimously beyond a reasonable doubt to say we're going to convict and imprison a former president. Now add to the fact that it's going to be a leading candidate, possibly the nominee, presumptive nominee, by the time a trial happens, you're going to have a jury take out a leading presumptive nominee of one of the two major parties. I'm not saying it's impossible, 
but I'm saying these prosecutors have needlessly complicated their own task by the slow pace they've both moved. For sure. I mean, it does seem to me Merrick Garland was the wrong guy for this job. I think you're right. I'm very critical of Merrick Garland in the book. I have a chapter in the book called Waiting for Garland, which I guess is a play on waiting for Godot or waiting for Guffman, right? You know, there are people who are, oh, he's going to come someday. He's going to save us. And and here's the thing. I do give Merrick Garland credit in the book for being a, a, a strong institutionalist. We were talking about Bill Barr before. Look, Merrick Garland, to his credit, has been honest. He's never lied to us. Kind of sad that we have to say it's a good thing for that an AG has never lied to us. But after Bill Barr, <laughs> we do have to say that. And he has tried to restore DOJ's integrity and independence. But my, my criticism of Garland is, A, he moves too slow. B, he has taken a myopic view of this case. He was always, well, we're going to start at the bottom and work our way up. You don't have to do it that way. If you have a shot at the top, Take a shot at the top. There's no reason he could have got to Cassidy Hutchinson. There's no reason he couldn't have got to Mark Short, to these other White House staffers who the January 6th committee got to a year and a half ago. So I, I don't think he was up for the task of bringing a strong, decisive, gutsy prosecution in a timely manner. Right. So the wrong person for the job. Um, Tell us one salient fact from your book <laughs> about how Trump got away with it, or yeah. if that makes sense. I'll give you one, one example uh, that I I think I use early on in the book. So everyone knows that wealthy people, powerful people will use their money and their resources to build themselves these sort of legal dream teams. I'm going to put dream teams in heavy square quotes here because a lot of times the reputations of these folks outstrip their actual talents. But, you know, we all remember the OJ team. But the more recent one is Jeffrey Epstein. When he first got charged in down in Florida, the case that Alexander Acosta completely botched. On purpose. We don't know how he botched it, right? Well, I... I I have a, a, a chapter on this in the book. Okay. He had this powerhouse team of Alan Dershowitz and Kenneth Starr and all these former U.S. attorneys. And I actually assemble evidence and I make the argument in the book that the reason Alex Acosta gave away that case is not because he was on the take. It's because he, he wussed out. It's because he was too afraid of them. And I actually found that one of the main prosecutors who was running the case she said that she believed that Acosta was basically just overwhelmed by these lawyers and didn't have the guts to take them on. And one of the victim's lawyers independently said the same thing. And I think that holds true now. I'm very critical of Acosta in this book. But now let me shift bases here. We all know that powerful people pay for lawyers, fine. But what people may not realize, and I saw this all the time in my own career as a prosecutor, is real powerhouses, real smart powerhouses pay for other people's lawyers. Why? to keep them from flipping on them. That's very Trumpy. Exactly. So I used to see this all the time in my mob cases. I tell a specific story. Every time we would do a big mob takedown, all the guys would be represented by lawyers who were chosen and paid for by the mob. And I tell a story about one of these cases where a lower ranking guy, but a potentially very valuable cooperator wanted to flip, but he couldn't do it through his lawyer because his lawyer was paid for by the mob. So he sent his girlfriend on this like secret backdoor mission to the FBI to let us know. And I won't give away the ending, but just like Cassidy Hutchinson, right? You are right with me. Exactly. And that is exactly the parallel that I draw. I say, look at Cassidy Hutchinson. Her lawyer was chosen and paid for by the Trump, a Trump affiliated entity. And while she had that lawyer, she said she did not feel like she could come forward fully. In fact, she actually lied her first interview with that lawyer right. there. They asked her, do you know anything about Trump getting into some sort of scrape with the Secret Service? On Jan-? And she said, no, never heard anything about right. it. She, you know, and, and then only when she broke free from this guy, Stefan Passantino, and got herself her own lawyer, former federal prosecutor, did she fully come clean. And so 
I talk about that tactic. And let me, one more thing on that, Molly. This is very common. CEOs, corporations do this all the time. And, and here's where it gets really maybe frustrating. For a long time, DOJ's policy was if you are an organization and you are paying for lawyers, providing lawyers for other people, we are going to count that against you. That counts as a strike against cooperation when we're assessing whether you've been cooperative. But in 2008, DOJ completely reversed that policy. It was just an internal memo. And it said, from now on, we're not going to count that against you. And it's this ridiculous sort of Pollyanna logic. They say, we believe that corporate America and big corporations have the same interests as we do in full transparency. Like, really? You think Enron wants to, wants to cooperate, you know, just like the same as you do? And so they changed their policy. And you know what? Since 2008, we've had Democratic DOJ administrations. We've had Republican DOJ administrations, Obama, Trump, Biden. No one has changed that policy. They've left it in place and it favors powerful people. So interesting. Thank you so much, Ellie. I hope you'll come back. Thanks, Molly. Great to join you. I would happily come back anytime. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jung Fest. Jesse Cannon. So the Republicans are real mad that Biden didn't shoot down that balloon fast enough, even though Mr. Trump had it happen three times and he never shot it down. The spy balloon over the United States. Biden uh, asked the military to shoot it down on Wednesday, according to what he said in the reporting. And the military says, wait until it's not overpopulated areas. And they decide to shoot it down on Saturday. Republicans used the following days to pose with guns and complain about Biden. In fact, one Republican says Biden should be impeached because of this. I mean, you just can't win with these people. First of all, I mean, and more importantly than anything, besides all the gun fetishizations of guns um it is like you, you mean carrie lake jd and mtg all opposing with the guns pretty much everyone you can think of posing with guns but ultimately the the balloon is way 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 up there and you cannot shoot it and in fact some law enforcement agencies warned that you really like shooting into a hurricane trying to shoot a weather balloon that is many miles up in the sky is not a good plan and so because of all of these many different very stupid things this is our moment of fuckery that's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.